Welcome to this episode of the Transforming Society podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement and renewed action against climate change all highlight the increasing gulf between narrowly based dominant political ideologies and popular demands for social justice, global health, environmentalism and human rights. In his new book, Participatory Ideology, Peter Beresford, who is visiting professor at the University of East Anglia and co-chair of Shaping Our Lives, encourages us to change the way we look at ideology and examine approaches where more of us can be included in its creation. So there are lots of big discussions to be had here, so let's make a start. Hi, Peter. Thank you for being with us today. So let's talk about you a little bit first. Um, Your work has always focused on participation, so that's where I wanted to start. Please, can you speak a little bit about your background and explain how you define participation? I think you show in the book that it's actually more complicated than we think. I I guess my background is quite a a, a complicated one, as as so many people's are. My mother came from a Jewish working class impoverished background. My father who killed himself when I was four came from a completely different background. I I still do not know how they met. Um, And uh, so I was brought up with my sister in a a lone parent family full of insecurity and denial. And um, then had a life unremarkable and comparable with many others. Uh, But but I, I started to do research on single homelessness and homelessness was something that had also happened to me. And I began to realize that um, how homelessness was understood and treated as policy and shaped by policymakers and experts didn't necessarily fit very well with what might make sense to people, including myself, on the receiving end and our experience. And that we needed really to try and change that. Because what it seemed like was that policy, what you got when something went wrong, say, was a matter of other people's ideas, their assumptions, their perceptions, often imposed on people with the very least power or having a very difficult time in their life. And of course, the policymakers would often be people who had very little experience of the recipes that they were handing out. And so I, I, I think I intuitively, not with anything worked out, began to sense that what we needed was something very different. And we needed really to be reaching out to make sense of the ideas, experience and viewpoints of people for whom policies and services were intended. Um, And along the road, I ended up using mental health services for a long time, but also, and I think in a way even more significant, living for about seven years on benefits, welfare benefits, which were nothing like as bad then as they are now. But in fact, for me, that, um, at the time with small children, they, they were a, a, a grim experience, which I don't think I've ever quite lost, uh, of the, fit, the fear of returning to that again. So what, what does participation mean to you? How do you define well, that? Participation, of course, can mean many things to many people, but I, I think what participation is, is it's, it's about people being able to have a real say over their own life and over services, policies, institutions that impact upon them. And it's especially important, of course, if our situation in society is an unequal one, if we're, for one reason or another, um, less privileged and more marginalised, less powerful. And in your experience, what I know this is a big question, but what are some of the barriers to participation? Well, I, I think this is where it gets really, really interesting, because we are 
We are little, little items of flesh and blood. We are human beings. But when we live together in society, um, that's what history tells us, we are also um, social beings. And we are social beings, uh, not just with chums and family, but in organized groupings, in societies, within states. And that's what's, I think, especially significant when you try and think about participation. Participation is not just about us as human beings. It's us as social beings, as citizens, or indeed in, in societies now, uh, people denied citizenship status. But it's our role as civil beings uh, um, in organized life. And what then I think can be problematic is our relationship with the society so all sorts of things are going on here there are structures structural issues and there is that which is personal and there's the connection uh, between the two and that that connection can be quite a difficult one for some people uh, they are not privileged they are not advantaged but that does of course mean that others uh, kind of compound the issue because they are privileged and they are advantaged so what I've learned is that there are at least two key things that need to be thought about if we're going to equalize uh, opportunities for participation and challenge the, the, the barriers, which are enormous and can be very personal, internalized or big social and economic barriers. And put simply, there are two very straightforward words. These are uh, uh, trying to take forward a recognition that for people to have a real involvement in their society, they need access and they need support. You need to be able to get into things, organizations, services, policies, politics, arrangements that are out there. And you probably will need support to do so. It's not necessarily something that we all have, that we all have an equal opportunity to access, to, to get hold of. And if you don't recognize the need that we all have for access and support, some more than others, then what it really means from my experience is that basically some people will never get through the door to being part of things and others will never even realize there's a door to get through and it, it really is exclusionary we need to have support to build our confidence and expectations even to know that we have a right to a say in our society and not everybody by any means has that sort of sense i think we'll talk a bit more later about ways that we might be able to overcome those barriers but first um i wanted the book's obviously called participatory ideology so i wanted to look at ideology before I read your book, I think I saw ideology as something that's just kind of there and I didn't really question it. Um, and I'd certainly never considered how exclusive the process of its creation is. So where does ideology come from and how is it imposed on us rather than created by us? You see, I think I think what you, you started off with is rather like what I started off with. And I think what many people may start off with, I think that many people if you were to ask them in the street, tell me what you think ideology means, would, would be embarrassed and not be very confident that they were saying the right thing. And yeah. uh, when I started work on this, ideology was not something I had an expert knowledge of. And I realized that I had to acquire one. Ideology is a complex idea. Um, and it, it's about means and ends. It's about transmitters. And it has its history and it's about people who control it. Ideology on its own is nothing. It's an idea. But people who have control or uh, powerful regimes that have control over ideology, well, then they can they can really uh, 
rule our lives, putting it simply. Ideology is a matter of life and death. That's what I've realized. And the 20th century was the century of ideology. We had am amazingly, frighteningly extreme ideologies dominating that world. Uh, and we're still inheriting the consequences. Um, so, so ideology, it's about values, it's about ideas ostensibly, but it's, it's also about an awful lot more. Uh, and it's about how we try and achieve ideas and how we, uh, what our goals are. The thing, the thing for me that struck me trying to make sense of this, because I think I'm on a journey trying to make sense of, of this whole frightening concept of ideology is that what, what is meant to be um, the ends ends up being no more than the means so we get told things like uh, well the market will will sort things out for us or the state's the way forward and the brutal truth is that neither have been conspicuously successful if we look at regimes that have optimized either that, that's true historically we can look at the way that the states let people down uh, in the eastern bloc for example and we can look now at our own current experience about the way that the market uh, it, in recently in the US here and in other countries with neoliberalism is also imposing very difficult burdens and controls on most people while privileging a very small minority. So I think this is a, 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 what you might call an unknown world for many of us. And I include myself to start with as someone who didn't have confidence about what ideology really meant and how you, you could make sense of it. And that's frightening that something so important in our life, so big, which people get sent off to fight wars about and die, uh, and their families are bereft and impoverished as a result, and nations suffer, is something we don't really understand. That's, that's really quite a worrying, uh, worrying recognition. I realized reading your book that it does it does underpin everything and it's so often used to justify policies that perhaps aren't fair and things like that but because ideology is kind of unquestioned we don't question it and it's unquestionable and quite often backed up by science seem to be backed up by science it's it's ideology has a power over us that we succumb to and that's why we accept things that maybe we shouldn't be accepting perhaps yes and i think when you look at the the, the track record of, of of this concept of ideology which has its origins in the french revolution it was very much seen as a um, an expert word part of a science a social yeah. science and that um, really you needed other scientists to uh, understand it explore it and develop it not your ordinary human being. Uh, you, you were a recipient, a receiver very much of, of uh, ideology rather than an actor in its uh, understanding and development. So I think what you've just been talking about then might be the answer to my next question, but you talk a lot in the introduction um, that the idea for the book came from the fact that nobody talks about participation in ideology despite the fact that there has been increased interest in participation recently. Um, so why do you think there has been such limited discussion exploring the relationship between ideology and participation? I think it's probably about that power thing, isn't it? It's about power and the, the political nature of, of, of the essentially political nature of ideas like participation. Uh, people do talk about the ideologies in relation to participation. So putting it crudely that there's the democratic impulse for participation. And then more recently, we've heard much more about the 
um, uh, consumerist, uh, market-driven impulse for it. You know, and if if we have um, more say as consumers and customers in a society, then we will have more participation. But those are very different things. Um, I, I I don't know why it is that we've uh, not touched on. Um, I, participation in relation to ideology. I suspect because it's a very distant concept for many people, I suspect it's become quite its own reservation of intellectual activity. And perhaps the people who are interested in ideology haven't been people concerned with issues of participation. Um, so I, I don't really have an answer to that, but I think it, it's a, it was an absolutely unexpected realization. Uh, which I got from someone else. Um, I, it never came to me on my own. I, you know, one of the one of the advantages of trying to think about things more collectively is that we learn from each other. Was this realization that something that's so influential and has so much impact on our life, we have little say or involvement in. And what's even more curious and ironic is that the counter ideologies—that's to say, the ideologies that we sign up to—to uh, to challenge dominant ideologies which we might find oppressive and offensive, generally speaking, often have little more opportunity for involvement uh, than the prevailing ones. So we sign up as opposition, uh, but we're effectively still a stage army in terms of the construction of that ideology. It's take it or leave it. You go for this particular version of left-wing politics or that particular version of right-wing politics and ideology. Uh, and if you, if you don't like it, tough luck, leave, or become a splitter and, and make your possibility of change even smaller. And I think we've taken all that very much for granted. Yeah, you explain that really, really well in the book. Right, so the current state of play is that people with power create ideologies, putting it simply, while people without power receive them. So how do we start to move towards a more participatory ideology? And in the book, you say that we should look at our own personal ideology as a starting point. So why, why is this? Well, if, if, if ideology is something we don't really, um, many of us, and I do include myself in this before I tried this, to, to take this project forward, then we need to be able to make a bit more sense of it. We need to give it some thought. We need to have conversations with other people about it. And, and you know, we can look at very straightforward texts and learn uh, helpful things about where we get ideologies from. We get them from our families, our parents. Um, uh, uh, we get them from school and our education. We get them from the media. We know we know intuitively most of these things, but that doesn't necessarily explain to us why we go for any particular uh, brand of ideology. And I think all of us have our own. Uh, this is just my view. We have our own, not necessarily articulated ideology. And I think. The first way of trying to make sense of, of ideology is by thinking what that might be. I, I remember when I was a kid, when it was New Year and Christmas time, they'd always ask people what they were hoping for. And people would always say things like peace and uh, happiness and simple and understandable things. But it doesn't seem to be very difficult to get people to sign up to things which are very different from peace. And we've been seeing that for at least uh, this century really insofar as been a concerted I think pressure on people which I think many people have accepted and internalized to um, dislike and be fearful of, of strangers to to be angry about immigrants to 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 accept divisions which are suggested to them by their policymakers and politicians in relation to disability and age and 
ethnicity and so on and so on that we are quite prepared to take on divisions which are discussed with us or handed down to us by politicians and policymakers yet other compartments of our life may know that these don't make any sense at all and there there's long been that recognition that the awful thing that the nazis used to say that that everyone will have everyone of course the aryan everyone as they understood it will have their a decent little Jew that they know, as they put it, but you must not let that detract you from the reality, which is etc, etc. And mm -hmm. so we are made to dislike each other along all sorts of lines of difference uh, without necessarily appreciating that. We may have loving, kind and, and thoughtful uh, ideas of what our ideology is, but actually it's also imbued with the kinds of dislike and division, which I think have dominated recent politics and been very important in public ideology. So it's about um, looking at our personal ideology and exploring its like contradictions in yes, it as well. Yeah, I think so. So having explored our personal ideology and examined its contradictions, you go on to say in the book that we need to look at what we can then learn from the wider world and you focus on service user movements. Please, can you talk us through this? Well, I've been talking about current and recent politics, but current and recent politics, and I, I draw a big distinction between um, personal and formal politics uh, in my understandings, and I think it's incredibly relevant here. I don't think people, when they react positively and accept uh, hate talk from politicians, which then leads on to violence, really want that to happen, not in their personal politics. But it, it, it's because of the gulf that there may be in our in our understanding between the personal uh, and the political. Um, a, a, an area that I particularly focus on for making sense of ideology and challenges to ideology uh, are what are called the service user movements, probably because that's been where most of my activism has, has uh, taken place and I have a good understanding and they connect with my own personal uh, life uh, and experience. But what's interesting about movements like those that, that the um, mental health service user survivor movement or the disabled people's movement, both of which I've, I've, I've long been involved in, is that these are groupings of people that in a sort of a sense were so far outside uh, ordinary, ordinary activities, so excluded and marginalized, that in some senses people left them alone to have their own ideas and thoughts, also made that more possible by segregating them in, in, in institutions, in separate schools, uh, thinking they couldn't live in the family, so that assuming that, so that they were brought up in institutions, which actually gave people opportunities to think together from their own points of view, rather than just accept uh, what others were saying was the case about them. And they, of course, knew from their own lives and experience that how they were seen as incompetent or as uh, es essentially as one research project put it, parasites. Um, uh, uh, always to be dependent. They knew that none of this had to be true, but it had connections with how they were regarded and treated in society. So they had opportunities to get beyond how you might feel crushed on your own, to talk with each other um, and to formulate different ways of understanding yourself and what might actually help you in your life, what, what was useful rather than what the old traditional Victorian-inspired charities had offered. And I think it's in a kind of way, because their situation was so 
excluding and, and so disempowered in one sense that and so ignored and, and, and devalued and left alone in that way that they were able to um, formulate radically different things because people in those categories have never been really left alone their rights have um, you know our rights have been denied and devalued and so on and so forth we've been seen as people who who who, who might not really justify life uh, and there's still that tendency in societies uh, we know now including this society uh, you know the, the kind of uh, attitudes when someone uh, is, is offered the opportunity of aborting a baby that's seen as having an impairment for example these things are powerful and enduring uh, but it's meant that in a sort of way people have had a freedom to develop their own understanding uh, at least in part because you never really get left alone once people find a, a, a field to get to work in uh, and and, f and develop our own thinking and people of course have come up with very different understandings of themselves and very different understandings of what would be helpful but we've seen that in in in, in more broadly in the new social movements that were, were developing in the last um, quarter particularly from the 60s onwards uh, of the 20th century starting especially with the black civil rights movement where people rejected um, those cliches and assumptions and stereotypes about themselves as black people as women as uh, people of different sexualities uh, against the odds and and develop their own counter understandings and what i find interesting about the old the old left right political uh, ideolo ideologies is how little they seriously addressed um, the way different groups, each of them, different groups might want to be seen and see themselves uh, in a sort of a, a way. Um, and we saw it with the old welfare state, which was a positive inspiration. But the way it regarded and treated disabled people, uh, I think, um, leaves so, so much to be desired. Um, I found the example of the disabled rights movement and the ideology and your discussion about the ideology of disability in the book really helpful um, in terms of understanding how the creation of ideology works and what the possibilities are for it. Um, can you give are there any other examples or case studies of where participatory ideology has or might have the potential to happen? Well, that's 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 something I was tr trying to bring out that we live, in my opinion, in in in, in highly neoliberal reactionary pop populist times but at the same time through all these years uh, when there's been a, an ascendancy in formal politics of the political right we have seen counter developments and at the current expressions of those are, are things like the black lives uh, matter movement the me too matter the commitment to uh, the environment and environmentalism and the future of the planet which is now powerfully being expressed by, by children as well as grown-ups, the Occupy movement, um, that there, there are a whole range of different developments which can be associated also with broader uh, historical developments, like obviously Black Lives Matter, where there's a whole history of, of police depression of Black, black people uh, in the States, uh, for example, uh, right through uh, as a means of challenging anyone who tried to run away from enslavement onwards. Um, so I, I think actually, although we have, uh, we live in a world where our, our media is very partial uh, and, and, and highlights certain things, 
all these things are constants and sometimes they're more visible than at others and we've had a, a time I'm pleased to say of significant visibility for what are I think essentially um, in, in practice more participatory uh, developments. I mean if we look at what, what I find so exciting about the black civil rights movement right from the late 50s into the 60s was that it latched on, it created, it engendered a marvellous idea which people have sought to debase since but which is still powerful and I've, I find it incredibly valuable, the idea of empowerment which connects us us as humans with our political and ideological world because there is first the aspect of personal empowerment that we need to be got in a position where we can get a grip on who we are how we want to see ourselves what our rights should be and how we connect with society and then our political empowerment which is about being in a position individually and collectively to do something real about it not to be recruited to somebody else's cause but to be our own cause and to be part of it. And that's, I think, what uh, highlighted the, the, the legacy of, of, of the black civil rights movement and all the other expressions um, uh, around black challenge, which we've seen ever since, black power, uh, black, uh, uh, the black Muslims and so on and so forth. What do you think has been the impact of COVID-19 on ideology and what impact might it have further on in the future? Well, being part of discussions taking place among service users uh, through, the, through the last year under COVID-19, and there have been a lot of discussions, um, not in mainstream media, but certainly amongst ourselves with social media and beyond. Um, it, it, it's been interesting because there's been several kinds of, of, of key recognitions and developments. I think that public policy has really battened down and the, well, it's not just me, this is a theme which service users in our organisations highlight. And the developments in taking forward involvement in relation to policy and politics have, have kind of been curtailed. It's been seen that COVID was an emergency. We haven't got time for that. Yet at the same time, what people have been saying as service users, for example, service users with mental health problems and service users are constrained by physical and other impairments so that they have been under a permanent lockdown, as it were, is how much there could be to learn from them uh, about dealing with possible uh, emotional and other difficulties from that and how you can challenge them in a, a, a kind of COVID-proof way. And a, and a kind of an anger and a sadness that uh, their voices weren't being sought, their experience wasn't being listened to. And although an enormous amount of research has been commissioned in the context of COVID-19, uh, I think it's only at the margins that the lived experience and voices of service users have been sought. And it's important that that does happen because I think in the longer term we will find out uh, important things from that past experience and also experience under COVID. And we've got to remember that there's long COVID. That is a reality uh, and we need to be listening very carefully to people who have uh, wisdom to offer about that but I've been thinking to myself how is the benefit system for example going to react to people uh, with the consequences of long Covid and I fear it may be uh, very very aggressively unhelpful and unhelpfully. Yeah such important points there um, and as these ideologies evolve um, I hope with more participation what should the role of people not in marginalised groups be? I, I think the, the, one of the great emerging strengths that we've realised there is 
for us in marginalized groups, and this goes for all groups facing discrimination and exclusion, is to have the confidence to make reassessments of who we are uh, and the complexity of who we are. We're not just one thing, we're all sorts of things. And that goes for everybody. You know, you could be a very important senior academic or policymaker, whatever, and you are, you are more than the sum of your expert knowledge of your professional diplomas and degrees. And what I think I would say to people in those situations, try and value all of what you are. Uh, we all of us are in, in uh, complex roles, in, in, in multifaceted identities. Make space for that which is personal to you. Don't, don't push it away because that's the road to pushing others away and to alienating yourself and others. Uh, try and, and, and think through your own experiential knowledge, the complexity of your identity, that we do not actually live in a world of uh, monolithic uh, enablers uh, and people who are to be seen as dependent uh, uh, and less able. We are all complicated. Doesn't mean that some of us don't have an awful lot more power and we must recognize that. So I, I think we, we need, if we are more powerful, to recognize that power and to always be wanting to hear what other people have to say about their situation and situations and not just impose or assume our own, but also to, 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 to value ourselves because if we don't value ourselves, then we will uh, have prejudices about others. And we should also remember, uh, and my, the, the, the most helpful area of research that, that I've been involved in to make one understand this is, has been in the context of palliative care where everyone dies including experts and important politicians. And some people need the support of specialist palliative care workers. And then for the first time, perhaps in their life, they know what it is to be on the other side. Sadly, it's, it can come too late to influence their understanding as a policymaker, but it, it shows you that we do have some things in common as well as we are in many ways different. And we need to respect all of ourselves if we are to respect everyone else. There's so many ideas there of how we can move forward, I think. Um, as a final question, if it's possible to answer, if there was one thing you would like people to take away or action as a result of reading your book, what would it be? Um, have your own private conversations, because I, th I think words like ideology are terribly intimidating to many people. I, th I think people, when they, they talk about participation in terms of writing things down and speaking at public meetings have no idea how embarrassing and frightening all that can be to many people uh, and that can cut across issues of, of of class and difference too some of us are good at it some of us are frightened of it so have your own internal conversations i hope the book can encourage people to do that and also i think one of the worst things in our world these days is the power of mediators of of of, of gatekeepers, whether we're talking about the media or, or we're talking about uh, the versions of ourselves that we're handed by back by so-called reality television, uh, the soaps, uh, and by our policymakers and key politicians. We need to be more talking to each other and trying to be brave about that, opening up conversations. And we've seen it in COVID, that COVID, one of the massive consequences has been that it's more and more difficult to do that or we can only do it in very particular and sometimes limiting ways and 
all the goings on adults have about, oh, I'm very worried about the children sitting in their room all day with their computer. What are they doing? Well, you, you know, leave that one out because a lot of what they might be doing is talking to other people like themselves through their computer. But what about ourselves? You know, we are more and more reliant, it would seem, on media that are more and more marginal in lots of ways. How many copies of the, uh, the, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the Times are actually sold? Not like they used to be, and they still are given um, by amplifiers like the BBC an enormous significance. We need to talk more and more to each other. Things have, I think, got in the way of that, and we need to be very deliberate about trying to challenge that. Uh, we need to be proactive. We need to reach out uh, we need we need to try and work out not not what it, the means is to what we would like in our life or for our loved one or loved ones or our children and grandchildren or the market will sort it or but what it is we actually would hope for them and we might hope for them good health and we might hope for them uh, occupation that's uh, adequately rewarded and, and feels secure and, and what we found out I think under COVID is that unfortunately simplistic assumptions about the customer being king and so on and that we'll, we'll use the sort of methodology of the market to run a, a service like the NHS doesn't really stand up when we have threats and difficulties that can affect us all and affect us together uh, and, and it shouldn't just be that the only way we know each other as under Covid is as a potential threat you know that someone else might give us uh, the virus but that we can know ourselves and each other much better um, through reaching out and, and, and trying, and it's so easy to say and so difficult to do, trying to challenge those awful um, prejudices which are institutionalised often, which only lead to um, grief, sadness and conflict. As, as, as the, the, the poet Sassoon said of the First World War, what starts of, as ringing of bells ends up as ringing of hands, and we must not allow that to happen. Well, thank you, Peter. Um, thanks for being so honest and insightful. And I don't know, it kind of, this offers us maybe a glimmer of hope in difficult times. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I hope so too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for speaking to me today. More information about Peter's book called Participatory Ideology is available at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.